hot on the trail of what makes great workplace cultures tick and what we can all do to make the ones we work in better. I'm Andrew Scarcella. This episode, we'll be talking with Reshma Sojani about bravery, inclusion, and how to raise the next generation of female business leaders. Join us after the interview for Tangible Takeaways, where we'll talk about the ideas and actions we can take with us and implement in our own workplace cultures. Reshma Sojani is the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, a national nonprofit organization working to close the gender gap in technology and change people's idea of what a programmer looks like. She's been named one of Fortune's world's greatest leaders and Forbes' most powerful women changing the world. And she's also written three books, including Girls Who Code and Women Who Don't Wait in Line. Her latest is Brave, Not Perfect. And if you haven't read it yet, stop listening and start reading. Reshma was interviewed by our very own Katie Clifford. Katie, welcome back to the workplace. Thank you. Excited to be here. So Reshma is maybe best known for being a failure, which is not a dig. It's kind of her shtick. Um, What was it like talking to her failure to failure? (laughs) So I'm going to take that as a compliment. Oh, it was. Uh, Failure to failure, because one of the things that was really cool talking to her was the ownership of failure and how that is such a taboo thing to admit. And, you know, you listen to a lot of people who are successful who just try to sort of dance around their failures or spin them or give a PR sheen to them. And she just comes right out and gives you the numbers of how how badly she lost. She's very election. candid. Super candid. And I just found that so refreshing and so cool because she is successful. I mean, this is this is a woman with several degrees and, you know, ha- runs a successful organization and she's very cool. But for her to be so open and transparent about the things that she has failed at just felt like, oh, yeah, that's just a thing we can all be honest about. And I, I feel like it helped give me some permission to just let go of some of the failures I was trying to PR around in Mm. my life. She's very real, very human, and uh, it makes us all feel a little bit better about our missteps. Yeah. she. What have you? She really gives you permission to say, that's fine. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That happened. It was not great, but here's what I learned and I picked myself back up. And I think that was, I think our, I think as you listen, you'll really feel that sort of the, the genuineness of her experience and that she's not She's she is not BSing. She's being real. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to hear what you guys got up to. Let's get to it. Reshma, thank you so much for being with us today. We're really excited to chat with you and to hear your insights. When I first heard you speak, you started telling a story about running for Congress. And as you were talking about being this young woman of color, taking on the establishment, where I thought the story was going was an amazing underdog story. <laughs> we were headed for this fabulous upset. Right. That is not yes. how the story went, but it's definitely, I think, a more interesting story. <laughs> so let's start out today just by 
you finished that story. What happened and how did that sort of change the trajectory of your life, that, that particular experience? Definitely not how it went. Um, you know, my parents came here as refugees. I, from the time I was a little girl, I wanted to serve. I found myself $300,000 in student loan debt. Uh, and instead of serving, I found myself working in finance in a job I hated in a life I didn't want. And I was 33 years old and I thought, God, is this it? Like, is this it? And my best friend called me. And I remember, your, you know, your best friend always calls when your life is falling apart. And I walked into this windowless conference room at work and just she, through my tears, I heard her just say, just quit. And it was such a, like, she didn't say anything profound, but I heard it at that moment and I did. And I decided to pursue my dream and I, and I, you know, I decided to run for Congress in a Democratic primary against an 18-year incumbent. Like, it's common now, but it definitely wasn't common then. It was crazy. And I thought I could knock on every door, meet every voter, shake every hand, and I kind of convinced the world that I was going to be this underdog upset. Like John Legend did not one but two concerts for me. And on election day, I got killed. Like less than 19% of the vote, you know, $1.4 million on like 1,100 votes. I mean, don't do the math. It was horrible. But when I woke up the next morning, the first thing I thought was like, oh my God, I'm not broken. See, I had thought for so long in my life that if I tried something, especially if I tried my biggest dream and I failed, that it would physically break me and I wouldn't be able to recover. And the fact that it didn't just opened my eyes up to living my life very differently, what I call now living my life brave, not perfect. And it was in many ways the beginning of my life. That is really cool. The tagline of your book, Brave Not Perfect, is fear less, fail more live bolder. Did you feel like after that experience that that you say you realized you didn't, it didn't break you. Is that the beginning of living bolder? And what does that mean to you? Well, I think it was the beginning of recognizing that like that for so long I had tried to color in the lines and cross every T and put these notches on my belt. And it didn't make me happier. It didn't make me get closer to what I was meant to do on this earth. It just made me feel worse in many ways, because I would be perfect, but I didn't feel perfect. And I wasn't, certainly wasn't happy. And I realized that maybe what I need to do is chase failure, right? And, and chase a life that was not full of regret. Doesn't mean that it was going to work out every time. 99% of the time it wasn't going to work out, but I was going to be more joyful. And, and, and I certainly, since that race and since that loss, that's how I live my life. And it has shown me that I am much happier, much more full, much less full of regret. And, you know, if I hadn't run that race and lost, I never would have started this movement to teach girls to code. And I did it even though I didn't know how to code. And I didn't even bother to learn before I did. So, you know what I mean? Like that's, I think, what we're missing out on because of the way that we've been socialized. Contrast that a little bit for me with the work that you did before. How how was running for Congress? Did you feel different about that? Did you feel more alive? Did you feel more yeah? Like sort of while what, I was running, yeah. What was the process? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of crazy because I I remember when I the first time I went on television, it was like you know uh, Chris Matthews. I mean, I'd never gone on TV before, and I was shaking. It was a horrible interview, um, but I did it. You know, I'd have to walk into senior centers and talk to people who were very different than me. And I did it. And so I had to go into front of audiences and just talk. And so I pushed my boundaries. 
because you couldn't prepare for everything. You kind of had to walk in a room and figure it out. I had never run an election before. I had immigrant parents who were refugees who couldn't show me the way. I had a ragtag group of friends who like the only thing we knew how to do was build a website because nobody in the establishment would help me. And so it was really like jumping off a cliff. But the entire time, I've never been happier. I loved it. It was like feeling like being alive. And that's what I think people forget is that when you're afraid, you're actually alive. And when you're always playing it safe, you're kind of just like going along with things. And it doesn't actually give you that feeling. You know what I'm talking about? That feeling (laughs) of being like so present and like so in flow. And so, yeah, that's how I felt the entire time. And every experience was like, wow, like this is awesome. So I I have a similar experience in my life of, of trying things that I knew I was going to probably be good at. And yeah. so I got to a point where I had mostly done, mostly succeeded yep. because you <laughs> do yep. things you think you're pretty good at, you succeed. And the first time you fail, uh, the tendency is to really quickly put a PR spin on it. Like yeah. that's not really a failure. Yeah. Were you, because it was so public, do you think that helped you to move along quicker? That There was no way to say. No. Yes, totally. <laughs> yes. And I think it was to accept that it was a failure, right? Yeah. Like, there's, you couldn't hide it. Yeah. Or not talk about it or hide yourself. I remember the first week I had to call through all my donors and say, thank you. So I couldn't even like pretend it didn't happen and like go to Mexico, right? Like I had to deal with it and deal with people's feelings and their disappointments and their, and it was funny. And I think that's what really helped me because a lot of people are like, oh yeah, we didn't think you were going to win. You know, this was about what we think you're going to do in the world. And I was like, oh, and I started seeing kind of the longer version of this. It's also the first time I also started practicing what I call like my hack on failure. So I think what happens when we fail is we think about it and we think about it and we we replay the tape over and over and over again. And I kind of said to myself, and I had visualized failing before when I decided that I was going to run and said, okay, can I accept all the things that are going to happen? And so in some ways, it had already happened to my mind. But the second thing I had said to myself was, all right, Reshma, you have one month to drink a lot of margaritas, <laughs> ask, you know, who's now my husband and everybody, my best friends in my life, why, what I do wrong, what I do wrong, what I do wrong. And then after a month, you're done. Like you don't get to replay the tape anymore. And that really worked for me. And I use that practice now. To just pack it up. Pack it, it away. up. Yep. Yeah. This, yep. We're, we're done here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're now a leader of an organization, Girls Who Code, and you obviously have employees and you're leading a movement. You're the face of this bravery idea. And leadership is definitely changing from a world where you know, a leader was someone who bossed everyone around. But how do you embrace that failure and still inspire people to have confidence in you? What's that sort of tension between, yeah, I want you to believe me that I can do this, but also know that I will accept and take responsibility for failure. It's really, it's, it's something I think is really important because I think that you stop being innovative if you stop failing. So, you know, we start Girls Who Code, we tried things that it didn't work and then you'd start something else, right? But when you get into your seventh year, it's harder, right? And I think that's how organizations become stagnant. So I'm always pushing the organization to try things and then I shut them down when they don't work. And I, we recently had this experience where we had this two-week program that we're no longer going to continue because it wasn't 
It didn't have the results that we wanted. And we're basically having a failure party for it. <laughs> Missing it. I have a video that I'm doing today, but we're celebrating it. And, you know, there's no repercussions to anybody on the team. We've kind of re-per- we've re-put people into like opportunities that they're excited about. And we as a team are, lit- as an organization, are literally getting a cake and cupcakes and having a party and drinking wine and celebrating because we learned a lot. So I think that you have to not not call things a failure when they're a failure. Yeah. And then you have to celebrate them when they don't work out. I would love to get a cupcake for a failing. Yes. <laughs> but I think that- at least you tried. Yes. That's huge. And I, I think one of the things I've heard you talk about is kind of failing fast <laughs> yes. and being willing to call it. And I think that takes bravery as well to say. Yeah. <laughs> and we do this in work. I mean, how many times have we stayed in jobs? Because we can do them, but we know that they're not, they're not for us. And I think that this is, again, more so of a problem for women, yeah. right? Because we have been raised to kind of give up before we try. And we've been raised to confuse things that we're good at with things that we like. And so that leads to a lot of sticking in things, opportunities when we're stagnant because that's what we've been told to do. Do you think that that boys are given more ability to sort of go after things that they're not? 100%. Because we're always trying to man man them up, yeah. right? So we're like, try again, try again. I'm, I'm going to push you and you're going to – I mean, literally even the way that we play with them. Like I watch how even my husband plays with my son – he knocks him down. He's got to get back up. He knocks him down. He, you know, we don't play with girls that way, right? We immediately, when they get, I mean, a friend of mine was teaching her daughter how to walk and she was walking behind her and she was being like, you know, be careful, honey, be careful, honey. And then she's like, and then your face popped in my head. And I was like, go baby, go baby. But that shift, right? That really simple, think about the words that we use with our daughters. Be careful. Don't do that. Honey, be nice. All of that, right, is we're conditioning them. I'm, I'm uh, like reading a script of the things I've said to my nieces and yeah. nephews over the last two we weeks. All it, yeah. We all do it. We all do it. And I consider myself a, a strong, independent. I'm not trying to tell my little nieces, hold them back, but it's definitely uh, a gut reaction to sort of say, oops, yeah. be careful, don't do that. And I talk about this in my book. I mean, you know, I run an organization that's predominantly made up of women and I see it, right? And I'm always trying to push up against this culture of, you know, change my culture to reflect, right, this un, this brave, not perfect leaning. And yeah. so you have to really lean into that. And, you know, it's I'll see it. Like oftentimes the men in my organization, are the first ones to raise their hands, like, oh, I'll do that. I'll try that. And the women are, well, let me think about it. Let me come back to you. And they're calculating. Can I do this right? Can I execute this right? You know, what's going to be the cost if I don't get it wrong? How's that going to make me feel? And men just don't make that calculation in the same way. They're sort of willing to just jump. Yep. Yeah. So along those lines, you talk a little bit about the bravery deficit. So if we as women are growing up feeling like we don't want to take risks and we're nervous, what is that costing diversity and inclusion and leadership, like how is that affecting not just us as as individual women, but us as a country yep. and as organizations if women are scared? Yeah. I mean, so when I think about the leadership gap, let me be clear, right? We have to continue to fight racism and sexism and they're deeply entrenched into our work cultures. I see it every day in the tech industry. But we also have to give women strategies to thrive in the culture as it is, Right. So that to me is about the bravery muscle and everyday bravery. And so, you know, for example, I don't know if you see this, but you and it, you notice like, and I say this every time in my Q&A, 
when it comes to question and answer period, the first 10 hand raised are men. And it's not that the women don't have a question. They're perfecting it. They're thinking about it. They're writing it down. And by the time they have the courage to ask, I'm out the room. So what's happening? In that moment, the men are thinking, oh, we have nothing to participate or to say. We're mad at ourselves. And we're mad because like the dude next to us kind of said the exact same thing we were thinking. And nothing changes, right? Our voices don't get heard. Our contributions don't get heard. And we're left feeling this sense of imposter syndrome and, uh, and it eats us up inside. And so we have to catch ourselves. And it's not our fault. We've been raised this way. But what I'm trying to do in this bravery movement I'm building is like get women to acknowledge these behaviors that we engage in every single day. I mean, I see it even as I was walking down the hall and you bump into somebody and they're like, oh, I'm sorry. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm sorry. I bumped into you. Yeah. But we're conditioned that way. And I think the good news is, is we can change it. And I think you change it, but again, by building your bravery muscle and you sometimes change it by, by building your bravery muscle in other things. So I say to women, go surfing, right? Go downhill on a bike, right? Learn, go to karaoke, right? Put yourself out of your comfort zone. Try something that you've told yourself in your head, I'm not brave enough to do. I'm not strong enough to do. And do it. And when you start building that muscle in other aspects of your life, you'll see how, it sh- you'll see how courage shows up in your professional life. So do you encourage that behavior at Girls Who Code? 100%. Yes. I mean, it's part of our, our values, right? Sisterhood, bravery. And it's what I teach my girls. And it's, a, it's literally a practice. You know, we've built these challenges that we've been doing, you know, weekly challenges that like I have all the girls in my college loops basically partake in. Like, so how do you practice imperfection, right? How do you do something this week that's just for you? How do you do something that's about, you know, you can't be brave if you're tired, right? Yeah. So what are you going to do this week to like rest or to take care of yourself or that do that doctor's appointment that you've been putting off? You just mentioned a term that I'm a little fascinated by, practicing imperfection. That yes. just sounds terrifying. You have to do it. <laughs> what, do you, what is some sort of practical example of practicing imperfection? Um, sending an email with a typo in it, right? Everybody freaks yeah. out. Yeah. Because think about it. We spend so much time rereading and rewriting our emails with like 900 explanation points and like typos in them. And, he, and men don't do that. And yeah. so I say to people, this week send an email that's semi-consequential, can't be to your partner or friend, (laughs) with a typo in it. And the thing is, we go so quickly from I made a typo to I made a mistake to I'm stupid to I'm dumb to I'm going to get fired on about 10 seconds. And what you're going to see is nothing's going to happen. And so there's so many things like that that we almost overdo, overthink, over, you know, overperfect, and we don't get any points for it. Sure. There's no there's no winning a gold medal for yeah. a good email. Nope. <laughs> and it just either eats up time or it creates anxiety. Yes. Definitely creates anxiety <laughs> when you overthink something. Yes. Which we're all doing constantly. All the time. Yeah. And we're, because, you know, sometimes I feel like we're just still so concerned. That we, and so much of that is, what are people thinking about me? And I do that now. I have like no time to barely drop my kid off to school. Yeah. Right. So all my free time I try to put in my family. 
And but every time I get an email from someone who's like, "Can I have 15 minutes of your time?" which I that I don't have time to do, I feel bad saying no or just saying, "Can you ask me over email?" I promise I'm on inbox zero, right? I will like answer. But I still feel guilty about that. And um so many of us give so much of ourselves and it's not that we're not being kind. It's just that it's coming at a cost to our own health. Do you find that you have to also model that as a leader? Yes. I totally have to model that. And I know sometimes when people look at my life, they're like, how does she do it? And so, you know, I'm like, I'm going to the gym. I'm not going to be in till 11, right? I'm leaving at 5.30. I'm going to go to a music class with my son, Right. I, you know, one of the things I used to do when Sean was much younger, I still do it now, is I used to bring him with me. And I used to bring, I, like, we, he would be, he'd be sitting in front of when I'm at Harvard giving a graduation speech or when I'm speaking at the National Governors Association. I brought him with me when I was on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. And literally, I remember Trevor walked in and my son is like, literally, I have candy everywhere. He's crying. Like, I'm like, ah! It's messy. And my, the women in my team are looking at me and I'm like, yep, this is life. Yeah. It's not what you see with me on Trevor Noah and The Daily Show giving a great interview. This is how it looks like. Yeah. And so I want them to recognize and see the messiness, but also see that you can do this. You just got to do it and not think that it has to be perfect. What do you think work is going to be like in 10 years? I think a lot more flexibility. I mean, so much of the reason why I feel like I can be an effective mom and an effective CEO is because I have flexibility. I can bring my son. I mean, the women in my work can bring our kids to, to the office. We need more flexibility. But like that's got to change, right, for women and men. And I think both are, are demanding it. I also think that, like, you know, people you know, and, you know, they don't need to be in an office having FaceTime all the time. But I still think collaboration is important. I think people need to still come together yeah. and face each other and see each other and touch each other and feel each other. But right. I think it's going to change. So if you could, in a word, describe your ideal workplace culture, what would that word be? I mean, for me, it's mission-driven. Okay. And what does that mean to you? Like, I just feel like the world is crazy. <laughs> and everybody should be thinking about how to make it a little bit better. Even though if you're company, even though if you're a profit-driven company, yeah, it would be a different world if it that would. was everybody's. It would first priority. Yeah, you do have to make money, but if that could be it, the higher purpose, yes. But you know, back in the day, I think we used to take care of people. Yeah, right. We used to think about their benefits and think about their wages and think about their families and think about communities. Yeah, we've lost that. Do you, you run a company? Do yeah. you feel the weight of the people that 100%. work for you? Listen. I give, we give everyone, everybody three months paid maternity leave. And a lot of women work for me. I'm a nonprofit, but it's important, right? We really think a lot about benefits and we think a lot about culture and we think we want people to be productive and to learn and to grow. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I run a, you know, Girls Who Code is a almost a $40 million organization. I learn a a pretty large organization. (laughs) And so I deal with, I grapple with a lot of the things that people, CEOs grapple with in the private sector. Yeah, of course. You're still dealing with people and yeah. all of the things that that brings. Yeah. What's the technology we should use more of and what's the technology we should use less of? So I think what we should use more of is run the wrong way. Changed my <laughs> life. 
changed my life. What in what way? Unlimited runway has changed my life. I don't look. I think that we think as women, right? We think a lot. Women and men. What, what are we wearing today? Yeah, it's made my life much more efficient, and I think we've I've helped the environment. Yeah, because you're not buying fast fashion. Yeah, I'm not like. <laughs> Going to Zara every week. Yeah. <laughs> and um, though I still love Zara. Yeah. Uh, but I think Run the Runway has really changed my life. I completely recommend it to everybody. Um, I think the thing that we need less of is obviously, so, I think social media. I think we got to figure this out uh, in a way that we can still build community, but it's not so toxic. I know Instagram's talking about getting rid of the like button. I hope they do that. Right. I oh, hope wow. we, yeah. And I think some of these tweaks will allow us to keep the best of it and get rid of the worst. Yeah, so it no longer becomes a competition, mm-hmm. but more of a, I'm sharing this. Yes. Here it is. It doesn't matter if you right. like 12 or 50,000 right. likes. Um, who are some of your heroes? My girls. <laughs> you know, girls ago, we reached 185,000 girls. We've, you know, we've taught 185,000. We've reached millions wow. of girls. And every day, I'm just like blown away by the things that they do. Yeah. You know, I have girls who've built algorithms to help detect whether a cancer is benign or malignant. I have girls who built apps um, to help, you know, fight against bullying that's happened. I have a young a student who built a microchip where you put in a gun so if it goes off in an area like a school, it alerts the police. I mean, I believe that the, the girls of this generation will save us. They will heal us. They will teach us. They will lead us. And they're thinking about technology in ways that are to make the world a better place. And I feel like at times where I just want to throw my hands up in the air and be like, what is wrong with the world? I look at them and I'm like, we're going to be fine. (laughs) That's awesome. And that sort of goes back to what we were talking about with the bravery deficit. Mm -hmm. As you're teaching these girls to be brave and to take risks, the risks they're taking are to make the world a better place. That's got to be a really satisfying Feeling. Yeah, and I think part of it is just, again, if we can continue to unlearn perfectionism and to really think about the way we socialize our girls and even our boys. You know, I have a son who is like a little Gandhi. He's not jumping off any monkey bars. He's just kind and sweet and cautious, and everybody's always trying to man him up. And so, and, and you know, and there are girls who are fearless and who want to be dirty and messy and tinker and take things apart who we are trying to tell them how to be ladies. And so I just think we got to get this stuff right at the beginning. But we also have to recognize that it's never too late. You know, so many women like, are like, I bought your book and I'm going to, you know, give it to my daughter. I'm like, no, you read it. You read it because they're watching us. And generation after generation after generation, we're passing on this behavior and it's creating a bravery deficit. It's creating a leadership deficit. Yeah. And I think that we can uh, we can change this. And I, I have literally dedicated my life to this movement and, and to teaching women to be brave, not perfect, because I really believe like I'm tired of not seeing the leadership numbers move. Yeah. And if the one contribution that I can make to the world at this moment, it's this. What is the last book or article that you read that really stuck with you? Hmm, gosh. So I read like, I read uh, a book a week right now. Uh, it's, just, it's not fair. Um, <laughs> could be an article. Could be a tweet. <laughs> I was just, today I was just looking at a tweet uh, that Obama sent about uh, this young girl, Greta, who's been running around the world on climate change. And I think it just, again, speaks to, you know, speaks to what I feel like I see and I'm paying attention to is is young people. Yeah, she's brave. She's so (laughs) brave and awesome and amazing. Yeah, she totally is. Well, that's a beautiful person to end this on. Thank you so much, Reshma. It's been a delight to talk to you. Um, I I have been super inspired and I know all of the women in our office have been and we're super pleased we got to talk to you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. 
Now it's time for Tangible Takeaways, where we take big ideas out of the oven and put them on a wire rack to cool while we whip up a fresh batch of French buttercream to spread between the layers of our showstopper opera cake. The first is that there's a bravery deficit between men and women, and it starts before we even learn to walk. It's not our fault, but it is a responsibility to fix. Every time we tell a little girl to be careful or be nice, we're instilling self-doubt into their little minds. And as they grow, it grows with them, until it's not just part of them, it's part of our entire culture. But Reshma has the cure, exercising their bravery muscle through small acts of everyday courage. Take them rock climbing. Get them a ham radio for their birthday. Teach them how to build a campfire. And if they come up to you with a skinned knee, don't say, oh, you poor thing. Say, cool, how'd you do that? The more opportunities you give them to get out of their comfort zones, the same opportunities we give young boys without thinking, the stronger their bravery muscle will get. Soon, getting up and talking in front of the entire class, or trying out for the tribal soccer team, isn't daunting, it's exciting. The second is to practice imperfection. There are a lot of ways to do this, but I like Reshma's typo challenge. This week, send an email to a friend or coworker with a typo in it, on purpose. We all know the feeling of obsessively proofreading an email before we hit send, and the panic that sets in when we've already hit send and realize we misspelled achievement. Again, it's I before E, you blockhead. But what we don't know and what you'll almost certainly feel after sending that email is the sweet relief of knowing you made a mistake and not really caring because it's not a big deal. Because it's not. The third is that at some point in their childhood, every boy and girl should be given the book Hatchet by Gary Paulson. And after they read it, they should be given a hatchet. No, this isn't some attempt to combat so-called helicopter parents. It's just an acknowledgement that all kids crave the feeling of independence and should be given every opportunity to prove themselves by themselves. And if you're already an adult and haven't read Hatchet yet, do yourself a favor and pick up a copy on your way home. And after you read it, maybe go on Amazon and order the hatchet of your dreams. You'll flex your bravery muscle and your inner child will thank you. And you'll have a sweet hatchet. That's it for this episode of The Workplace. If you liked it, or even if you didn't, Please rate, review, and of course, subscribe to The Workplace on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was written and produced by yours truly, 
with editing and original music by Daniel Foster Smith, who also composed our theme song. If you have a burning question about workplace culture or a story about why your workplace culture is the best or worst, send it to theworkplace at octainer.com. The Workplace is sponsored by O.C. Tanner, the global leader in engaging workplace cultures. O.C. Tanner's Culture Cloud provides a single, modular suite of apps for influencing and improving employee experiences through recognition, career anniversaries, well-being, leadership, and more. If you want your organization to become a place where people can't wait to come to work in the morning, visit octanner.com.